According to Time Magazine in 1970, Catherine Power, at the time a university student in Boston, was a leader of a radical group known as the National Student Strike Force. You hope your children don't go off to college and join a group like that. She and several others had gotten together and formed this group, and their plan was to raise money to buy weapons to arm another radical group. And they would obtain money by robbing a bank. That's the way they were going to get their money to buy these weapons. Uh, The robbery didn't go as planned, as some do. A silent alarm was quickly answered by a nearby policeman. Shots were fired, a policeman was killed in the gunfight, and the students fled the robbery with Catherine driving the car. That night began for Catherine 23 years of a life in hiding. She would be listed as armed and very dangerous. Her picture was posted as one of the FBI's most wanted. If you went into the post office in those days, you would see her picture on the board. Catherine moved far away, settling down in Oregon and changing her name and identity to Alice Metzinger. She started a different life. She opened a restaurant. She bought a house. She got married. She had children. She was very active in her community. But after 23 years, Catherine was weighed down with fear. She was inwardly tormented with guilt and constantly depressed. Finally, she did the only thing she could think of to try and end this torment and depression she was going through. Much to the surprise of her family, her friends, her neighbors, the people who uh, came in, her customers in her restaurant, they were surprised when she turned herself into the authorities and revealed that she wasn't Alice Metzinger, but that she was actually Catherine Power. When reporting on this story... Newspapers stated Catherine's reason for finally telling the truth. Here's what she said. I was tired of living with shame and hiddenness and guilt. It was time to face up to the truth. The Psalms that we've been studying were written primarily to be used for worship. That was the whole purpose behind these Psalms. Some of the Psalms were written on a for a large-scale application. But some are very specific. Some psalms are very personal. Psalm 51 is one of those personal psalms written to um, remind us or written to show us the individual life of someone. It's been recorded for us so that we might learn from that event. Let me say that again. This psalm, inspired by the Spirit of God, David penned it down, It's been recorded for us so that we might learn from this psalm. Not that we don't learn from anything else in Scripture. We're always learning, but everything is pinned down for us. Instruction that we might learn. The superscription, as Richard read that, uh, it's attached to this psalm, provides us with some insight to what this psalm is about. Uh, It actually gives us the occasion for which this psalm was written. It reads, the psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went into him after he'd gone into Bathsheba. So that gives you an idea, the occasion, the purpose for writing this psalm. Now if you were to go back to 1 Samuel, chapters 11 through 12, you would discover even more of the details of the sin that King David committed. David's sin consisted of his adultery with Bathsheba. Most of us, you know, if we've been in church any length at all, and if you're not a Christian and you're not very familiar with the Scriptures, I want to explain this um, David, his sin consisted of committing adultery with a, a woman named Bathsheba. And after finding out through that adulterous affair that uh, 
Bathsheba had become pregnant, he put a plan together to have Bathsheba's wife, Uriah, taken out of the picture. And you know, y'all know the story. Uh, he commanded the, the, the commander of the army to have Uriah go forward in the battle. And then when things got hot, they pulled back and Uriah was killed. So that's kind of the background as to what's going on in this scene in David's life. Now think about this. David no doubt feels at this point that he's dodged a bullet, right? And breathe a sigh of relief. Until the day comes when Nathan, the prophet of God, comes to David. And y'all know the story, right? You remember that story? He comes in and he tells him the story of the little ewe lamb. And David gets angry. He gets mad and says, that's wrong. And what does Nathan do? He points his finger at him and says, you are the man, David. That is you. Here's what Nathan's really saying to him. He says, David... God knows what you've done. God knows it. At some point after this encounter with Nathan, David pins down these words. Here we have in Psalm 51. David's words sound a whole lot like who else? Captain Power, right? Tormented. Depressed. When you hear these words in here in Psalm 51, you'll kind of get the idea of what David was going through. And by the way, in the last um, couple of weeks, uh, y'all, or uh, week before last, y'all studied Psalm 32 in some of your Sunday school classes. This is a psalm that goes alongside Psalm 51. You can read these two together, and it's dealing with the same situation. So if you're looking at your handout there, here's what the main idea of the text is what it means to rightly repent of your sin before God. What it means to rightly repent of your sin before God. Now, we won't get through the whole psalm. We're just going to do the ten verses here. But that's what this whole psalm is about. But we'll look at the first ten verses. If you've got your handout there, look at verses one through two, and you see your handout. The forgiveness of sin requires a plea for God's mercy. In other words, you could take these points that I'm going to give you, and they could be application points. Here's what we need to do as believers. And by the way, David's a believer. He's a follower. He's a worshiper of God. And he's sinned against God. And here's how he responds when he sins against God. But it's also instruction for the lost person. Because we've all sinned. And I'm going to get ahead of myself here if I don't slow down. But this is applicable to a believer and non-believer alike. So he says here, or I say here in the handout, forgiveness of sin requires a plea for God's mercy. David says to God, what's the first thing he says to God? Have mercy upon me, O God. David's saying that the grounds for forgiveness is what? God's mercy. David uses language here that informs us that no one has a claim to the favor of God. When you ask God or anyone for mercy, you're saying, here's what you're saying, I'm undeserving. When you ask for mercy, you're falling upon this person. I have no right to this mercy. I have no merit concerning this mercy. God, give me mercy. Keep in mind the point here, the forgiveness of sin requires a plea for God's mercy. Here's what you and I must realize. When it comes to the mercy of God, there's nothing within us as sinful human beings that warrant the mercy of a holy God. There's nothing about you that is worthy of receiving God's mercy. The mercy of God is not something we should presume upon. It's not something we, you know, as I've already said, have a right to lay a claim to. We have no right. We're not entitled to God's mercy. God's forgiveness is something that you and I don't deserve. As sinners, you and I have one option. And it's this. We cast ourselves upon the mercy of God. Notice what David... Oh, God, 
have mercy upon me. Here in verse 1, David's showing us something concerning the nature of our sin and the character of God. David's showing us that his hope and our hope lies within God. God's mercy. David tells us that the absolute forgiveness of sin is found where? Church, in the mercy of God. That's the only place to find forgiveness. David tells us to take refuge in the mercy of God. Notice that David didn't point to his past integrity, right? We have a tendency to do that, right? And he didn't point to his past good deeds to to help relieve the guilt of his present sin, did he? He didn't say, oh God, you know, I've, I've done this in the past, and here's the good things I've done. That's not what David referred That's not what David went to, right? What did he fall upon? God's mercy. David, as a worshiper of God, realizes that he has sinned, that he has failed before God. David shows you and me our need to be completely dependent upon God. As a Christian, as a worshiper of God, even... A lost person, someone here today has never turned from their sin and trusted in Christ. You're, you're bound to the mercy of God. There's nothing that can, you, can, you can come before. There's nothing you can plead but the mercy of God for the forgiveness of sin. But notice how David asked for mercy. It's very important. He says, according to your steadfast love. Some of your translations may have the word loving kindness. What is it David's appealing to? He falls upon the mercy of God, but it's, it's mercy according to what, church? Your steadfast love. Now the Hebrew word, we've studied this word quite a bit on Wednesday night. It's the, it's the Hebrew word hesed. Now, I'm southern and I can't pronounce Hebrew real well. That's the best it's going to get. Hesed. Hesed is a covenant word. It describes the loving relationship that exists between God and His people. Those who belong to God. God's loving kindness is seen in His faithfulness to His promise to protect and bless those who belong to Him. This is a love that's limited to those who know Christ. Or followers of God, worshipers of God. For the person who belongs to God, love for God. And if, listen, if you, if you belong to God, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you belong to God, love for God is demonstrated by faithfulness and obedience to God's commands. Somebody says, I love Jesus. You know how you can know that? By watching and observing their faithfulness and their obedience to obey. That's how love is demonstrated. David has done what? He's broken his part of the covenant, right? But he knows that God remains faithful in spite of his failure. David asked God to deal with him according to God's covenant faithfulness. Not according to David's faithfulness, or better yet, his lack of faithfulness. He's throwing himself upon the mercy of God. It's according to God's steadfast love. Deal with me, God, according to your loyal love. Not my disloyalty. Deal with me, God, according to your gracious goodness. That's how I want you to deal with me, God. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13. This will be a good verse for you to... Make a note of and look at later. I'm going to read it for you. A verse that I have in my mind that I quote quite often. If we are faithless, He remains faithful. He cannot deny Himself. What does that verse say? If we, the people of God, are faithless, who remains faithful? God does. And why does He remain faithful? Because He can't deny His faithfulness. Secondly, David asked that God would deal with him according to your abundant mercies. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your abundant mercies. Some of you have um, 
A multitude of tender mercies, abundant compassion or great compassion. This tells us something about the character of God. God does not give out mercy in bits and pieces, does He? He pours it out. God's forgiveness is an abundant forgiveness. It's a great forgiveness. Listen to Psalm 103, verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our transgression from us. How far is the east from the west? Go east, you just keep going, and you keep going, and you keep going. You go west, you just keep going, you keep going. Micah chapter 7, verse 19. He will again have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. There's no forgiveness today, church. There's no forgiveness, lost person, like the forgiveness of God. A forgiveness that is abundant. A forgiveness that is compassionate. Notice next, this is very interesting how David does this. He describes, uh, beginning at the end of verse 1, the nature of sin. He uses three different words to, to, to describe sin, sin being one of them. Notice first, transgressions. Blot out my transgressions. Transgressions can be defined as rebellion against God. That's what transgression is. We're all transgressors. We all rebel against God. David, if you're thinking about David's situation... In the Ten Commandments, he broke commandment number six, commandment number seven, commandment number eight. Some of you on Wednesday nights are going, hmm. Commandment number nine, and which one did he break? Ten. Right. Verse two, he says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Iniquity can be defined as perversion of moral standards. To go astray or depart from the right path. David took a good gift. Listen to me. David took a good gift that our God gave to us. The gift of sex. And he turned it into a perversion, into immorality. He took the good gift, which is to only be enjoyed in the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman. And he left the right path and he went down a broad road of departing from God's moral standard. Verse 2, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Sin can be defined as an error, a wandering from the right way, missing the mark. Some of us have heard that defined that way. David missed the mark. He, he took life rather than saved life, right? He took Uriah's life instead of saving his life. He, he lied rather than what? Tell the truth. He missed the mark. He strayed. He went away from God's standard. Now some of us sitting here today are going, yeah, I'm glad that's David. I think me. Really? Listen to Romans chapter 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. How many have sinned, church? All. And fall short of the glory of God. The glory of God there is the standard of God. God's standard. We all fall short. Some of you heard heard this defined this way, and I talk about this in a prospective members class. That falling short of the glory of God, some people define that as as a target that's been set up, and there's a bullseye. And when you're shooting at the target, what do you want to hit? The bullseye, right? You're aiming at that. And they, and some people define it as we shoot at the target and we miss the mark. We 
shoot left or we shoot right, which is what I do a lot of times. But here's the real idea of that. The target's out there, and here's what you and I do. We shoot this way, we shoot this way, we shoot this way. We have no intention of shooting or hitting the target. That's what that really means. In other words, we got our own way of doing things, and we miss the mark. We all sin. We all fall short. We all, we, none of us care to hit the target. So the nature of sin is that we rebel against God and we're perverted and we all miss the mark. Notice next, David describes the removal of sin. We'll spend most of our time here in these verses. Notice he says in verse 1, blot out. Blot out my transgression. Blot out my rebellion, God. That blot out is an accounting term. It describes a recorded debt that needs to be canceled so that no trace of that debt remains. How many of you like to walk into the bank? I don't, do you still go to the bank and make car payments? I don't, I don't know. We, we mail ours in. But how would you like to go to the bank if they still did and walk up and say, I'm here to pay my car payment? And they say, we don't have no record. It's gone. What would you do? Some of you would hesitate. Do I need to ask again? Are you sure? Or would you just run? No, I would say, I want that in writing. Right? That's what this word means. It's as if it never existed. It's gone. It's blotted out. Then he says, wash me. It has the idea of washing clothes. David is comparing himself here to a foul, smelly piece of clothing that needs to be washed over and over again. His sin defiles, it pollutes the soul and the body. Sin is vile, it's filth, and it's a miserable thing in the sight of God. He says, wash me thoroughly, verse 2. David's expressing the greatness of his sin. He says, no other washing will do. God is only sufficient to do so. David's saying that the guilt of man's sin, the guilt of your sin, requires a special grace. It requires a thorough washing then he says there in verse 2, cleanse me from my sin. Now you may be thinking, why two words, wash and cleanse? Those are the same things, are they not? The reason, is that wash, the reason is that washing is the means by which cleansing comes. If there's no washing, there's no cleansing, right? Cleansing does not come unless there's been a washing. You can't spray a little Lysol or Febreze on dirty smelling clothes and then come clean, Right? It's the same with your sin. You can't spray on a little spiritual Lysol in order to be clean. There must be washing. I remember when I worked at UPS in my seminary days, and I would come home, and I worked 10 o'clock at night to 4 in the morning, unloaded trucks, and then I went to the sort aisle, I sorted packages, and some of you know UPS. I came home, I looked like I went through the car wash. I was wringing wet. My clothes, they smelled to high heaven. Debbie had to wash those things, and she had to wash those things, and she had to wash those things, and she had to wash those things. You couldn't throw dryer sheets. You couldn't get the smell out of it. It was just like wash them, wash them, wash them, and they still smelled bad. My point is you couldn't just wash I mean, they had to be thoroughly washed. And that's the idea here behind our sin. Look at verses 3 and 6. Your handout says, The forgiveness of sin requires a confession. From the center. David confesses that which pertains to himself. He says in verse 3, I know, for I know. By saying 
He knows his sin. David's owning up to it and he's saying what it is. He's admitting. David is the one who knows his sin. In other words, David has a personal knowledge of his sin. He doesn't attempt to justify his sin. How many, how many of us have ever done that? Don't raise your hand. You try to rationalize your sin. Justify your sin, right? David is saying, what I did is not some personal flaw. It's not some shortcoming. It's not a mistake. We like to do that, right? Oh, I just made a mistake. It's just a, you know, it's a shortcoming on my part. Notice in verse 3, David says, My transgression and my sin is ever before me. These two statements, For I know and my transgression and my sin is ever before me, they actually they go together. They basically complement each other. What David is saying is this, I did not conceal, I did not hide my sin. There was no hiding from it. There was no way to justify my sin. No matter what I did, it did not go away. It was constantly before me. You remember Catherine? Bought a restaurant, got married, had kids, became active in the community. Did that hide, did that conceal that sin? It, it was eating her alive. It was tormenting her. Next in verse 4, David gives a second aspect of his confession. David says, against you and you only have I sinned. That's pretty simple, is it not? David tells us that sin is first and foremost against who, church? It's against God. Did David sin against Bathsheba? Yes. Did David sin against Uriah? Yeah. He sinned against his own people, which he was the king over, right? He lied to them. He deceived them. However... What David did was sin because it was ultimately against who? Against God and His law. Verse 4. Notice what he says. And done what is evil in your sight. David says that the sin we commit is seen by God. And what does he say God considers our sin to be? Evil. You might be saying, wait a minute. I commit small sins sometimes. I don't think of them as evil. But who does? God does. We need to understand that evil in your sight is the opposite of what we read when we read Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 18, chapter 12, verse 8. And here's what those say. Do what is right or good in the eyes of the Lord. Evil refers to what is bad or disagrees with God's standards. The sin we commit is seen by God as evil. Have you ever sat and contemplated and thought about that? The sin we commit, God, when He sees it, and by the way, He sees it, right? When He sees it, what does He see? Evil. This truth takes away the idea that what a person does in private is his own business because there's no such thing as a private sin, right? Right? Nobody in the world may see it, but somebody sees it, right? Pardon my grammar. Therefore, it ain't private. God sees it. And He says it's what? Evil. When you now understand that all sins against God, then there will be no more categorizing of sin. Here's what you and I like to do. We've all got them, right? Small sins, big sins. We've got these respectable sins, right? We all have them. When you not take the attitude that sin is against God, 
and that sin is evil, then and only then is God's forgiveness made available to us. This is the only way for us to handle our sin. Now, the last part of verse 4, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. There's a lot of debate about what's going on here, what David's saying. The simplest way, I think, to resolve the the conflict or confusion is to say that this is David's explanation of his confession in verse 3 and the first part of verse 4. He's confessing his sin, right? So that God will decide on his case, and whatever God decides, David will know it's just, and he'll submit to it. In other words, David's saying, as a result of my confession... God's going to judge me, and whatever God says and whatever judgment God gives out, He'll be just and blameless in doing so. In other words, God is going to do what's right. Psalm 19, verse 9. This will be a good verse for us to remember. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous all together. So, any judgment that God makes is what? True. Righteous. All of them. God is perfectly just in whatever He may choose to deal with us or how He may choose to deal with us in our sin. Now in verse 5, we see the origin of sin. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and sin my mother, did my mother conceive me. David begins verse 5 with the word behold. The word behold, and I think I've said this before, is, is intended to grab our attention. Behold. You need to really pay attention. You need to focus and concentrate here. David tells us that he was born a sinner. David is saying, you need to make sure you understand something. Not only have I sinned this time, but I am by my very nature a sinner. That's what he's saying. This is what is commonly referred to as original sin. David not only confesses his actual sin, but he also confesses that from the very moment of the foundation of his life, he was a sinner. Look at verse 5. David says, In sin did my mother conceive me. Now, I want to clear, clear up something here. David is not saying that his parents sinned in the act of conception. That's not what he's saying. Okay? Everybody look at me. That's not what he's saying. His mother was not sinning when she conceived David. But the act of conception introduced David into a sinful humanity. That being the case, then the whole human race is fallen and sinful, right? <coughs> David, did you, did you get that? David said, at the moment I was conceived, I was a sinner. Now some of you have small children, right? You think, my, my baby ain't no sinner. You just give it time. You just give it time. You'll discover one day, oh yeah, capital S, I-N-N-E-R, sinner. David's saying of himself and of all of mankind that sin is not just a surface problem that can be handled by turning over a new leaf. We try that, right? But it's a problem that's what? Deep within us. We're not sinners because we sin. Alright? Instead, we sin because we are sinners. In other words, we don't become sinners because we sin. If that being the case, then you could quit being a sinner by what? 
Stop sinning. All of mankind is born in this world, fallen, sinful. Now, I know that presents a problem for a lot of people. That's not my opinion. That's what the Bible says. Romans chapter 5, verse 12 says, Just as through one man, Adam, sin entered the world, and death through sin, thus death spread to all men. Does anybody know what the next three words are? Because all sinned. Death and sin spread to you. Why? Because we're all sinners. We're all born that way. Verse 6. Now this is the second part of David's confession. Behold, you delight in truth and the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Notice the difference between what David has just confessed and what he says God delights in. You have this word behold again at the beginning of verse 6, which would seem to indicate to the reader that there's a close connection with these two verses. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to paraphrase these two verses for you, okay? Verses 5 and 6. Since I am corrupted in my very nature, and because you, God, are not satisfied with anything short of inward honesty, purity, holiness, and sincerity, you must teach what you require by imparting to me your wisdom. Here's what you and I need to realize and understand. God does not desire mere outward good acts or mere outward virtue. Instead, God desires what? Inward purity. You can see David's sense of sin intensifying when he discovers this truth and how far he is from satisfying the demand of God. David says, God, you desire truth where? In here. It's interesting to know that the word delight here actually means to will. In other words, God demands truth. He demands sincerity. He demands a pure heart instead of hypocritical professions of faith. God has and always will judge men by their inner nature and not by their outward professions. Let me say that again. God has and always will judge men by their inner nature and not by their outward professions. God sees the heart, right? Remember Psalm 139? Verses 7 and 10. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Two words here of interest. Purge. The word purge means to de-sin. De-slash-sin, or to unsin. Don't go home and try to find those two words in the dictionary, because they're, they're not in there. But that's what the word means. It literally means to descend. Then there's the word hyssop. I think so. We, we might be familiar with that from reading the Bible. Hyssop was what? You remember it's that little little bush that grew in that part of the uh, of Israel that was used to apply blood to the offering on the altar, and it was also used in another place we read of in Exodus, right? Remember they took the hyssop and they spread the blood over the the doorpost. So the death angel would pass by. To purge with hyssop here is a figurative expression that declares the need for a blood sacrifice. David was saying, by using these two words, that he wanted to be descend with hyssop. That's what he's saying. He was saying that because his sin is so deeply embedded within me, it can't be cured by anything but what? The shedding of blood. David knew that. My sin cannot be removed without what? Blood being applied. Hebrews 9.22 says without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. And that word shedding, 
How, how many of you ever heard someone say, it only took one drop of blood to save me? You ever heard somebody say that? You know that's not theologically correct. Because Jesus shed His blood, the Bible says, and that word shed means it was poured out. It took the pouring of blood to save, to reconcile sinners. David was saying, give me the reality of a blood sacrifice. The reality of the Old Testament sacrifice that was pouring to who? What did the blood sacrifice in the Old Testament ultimately point us to? Jesus. Hebrews says that once Jesus died and shed His blood, there was no more what? Need for the shedding of blood. Notice the word wash in verse 7. It has the idea of pounding and forcefully rubbing something in order to loosen the dirt. How many of you in here remember the days when you used to have to take the clothes? And I never had to do this. I've heard the stories. Take the clothes out on the old number two wash tub and put that rub board in there. Some of you remember rubbing the clothes. Get, that's the idea here that's going on. With force, rubbing something in order to loosen the dirt. David is saying if God does, does it, the effect will be the adequate cleansing. There's no such thing as cleansing from sin as God does the cleansing. Notice the effects of the washing. I shall be whiter than snow. David is saying that when God washes away sin, He doesn't do it halfway. It's complete, absolute, thorough cleansing. Notice David says, I shall be clean. I shall be whiter. David has the assurance, the confidence of sin being forgiven by God. Verse 8. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Think about it. Think about David's situation. Remember the story I told you about Catherine Power and how she felt because of her sin and guilt and trying to hide from that? Remember how, imagine how David was feeling. He says, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. He says, my sin is always, what? What's he say? It's always before me. I can't get away from it. It's always there. Most people will tell you that when David wrote this psalm, it had been about a year since he actually committed these sins to the point he penned this psalm. One year, based on David's current situation, based on how David's expressing his sin, what do you think David wants to hear that would bring him joy and gladness? Forgiven, cleansed, healed, sin gone. Notice verse 8. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Bones here is, is figurative of the framework of an entire person. David was experiencing personal collapse because of the guilt of his sin. It was so heavy upon him, it was destroying him, his whole person. Psalm 32, verses 3 and 4 says, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. What did he say? When I kept silent about my sin, my myself was wasting away through groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. You don't think David was in a difficult situation there? The guilt and the shame of his sin? Look at verse 9. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. David here is comparing forgiveness with the act, human act of looking away or not noticing the sin. Now, Listen to me carefully. David's not saying, God, wink at my sin and look the other way. It's a metaphor for a forgiving action. It signifies God forgiving his sin. We know that based on the next phrase. He says, blot out all my iniquities. It's the same statement he had in verse 3, except for the word all. The word blot has the meaning of canceling or forgetting. David is saying, God, cancel 
Forgive, forget my sin. And then lastly in verse 10, here's how this kind of culminates, even though there's nine other verses. What is David's words in verse 10? What has he just got through doing? He's pleaded, he's threw himself upon the mercy of God. He's confessed his sin and what it is. And he says, God created me a clean heart. Oh God, and renew a right spirit within me. David is praying for God to restore his spiritual life. Created me a clean heart. Clean describes something, as I said, only God can do. A clean heart has the idea of a heart that's free from the contamination of sin. Notice he says, renew a right spirit within me. It has the idea of being steadfast and committed. In other words, David wants renewed in him a steadfast attitude. He wants to be reliable and steadfast in the choices that he makes. Now, right, renew here is a very important word. David is saying, when you renew something, what does that put in your mind? When you renew something, it means it was there before, right? It was there once, Lord put it there again. Lord, my heart has become hard and it's callous. David knew that there was something wrong where? Here. Because he was making terrible judgments and choices. David is asking God for a radical change of his heart. And here's what we need to understand. It's not enough just to ask for forgiveness. There must be a change of the heart. There must be a renewed spirit. We can commit sins all day long and flippantly ask God for His forgiveness and go on our merry way, right? But that's not what David says. He says we need to pray to the point we say, God, get it out. Renew me. Get this thing out of there and revive me. I not only want forgiveness and to be cleansed, but God, there's something wrong in me. Renew my spirit. Get this out of my life. Now, if you're like me, there's sins you commit over and over, right? You get frustrated about that. But David says this thing had gotten a hold of him. And just flippantly asking for forgiveness was not going to get it done. He wanted God to come in and renew and revive him. What did I say this psalm was about? It's instruction for us, right? On how we're to respond to our sin. So let me close by just giving you some points of application. Actually, the, the, the outline is the application. The forgiveness of sin requires us to do what? To appeal to the mercy of God. That's how we come. We come and we throw ourselves upon the mercy of God. Because God is, when we do that, God is going to forgive us according to what? His steadfast love and His abundant mercy. You cannot be forgiven from sin apart from the mercy of God. And why do you need forgiveness? Because sin separates you from God. It separates the lost person from God. You're so far away from God right now. It's dangerous. And for the saved person, it hinders your fellowship with God. How many of you know when you fall into sin, you begin to feel that depressed? You know what I'm talking about. You know how you feel, right? You know what that is? It's the fellowship between you and God that's being hindered. That's what that is. Appeal to the mercy of God. Secondly, it requires a confession. We have to be... Listen, you're not telling God nothing He already know, right? But biblically, we're to confess our sins. You cannot be forgiven unless you confess your sin 
And that confession must be to the one who gives mercy. There's no other means of forgiveness. And lastly, the forgiveness of sin requires a restoration. You need to be restored. The fact that David asked for so many things indicates how many things that he's lost when he fell into the sin. You know this, right? You dabble in this sin a little while, and you don't think too much of it, right? And that sin becomes what? The more you dabble in it, the bigger it gets. Then you take on something else. The next thing you know, what has happened? The thing blows up. That's what happened to David. How did it start? He looks... And he sees. He covets. He sins. He commits adultery. You see how that thing kept building and bigger and bigger and bigger. There are two kinds of people here today. There's a, there's a group that this may be the first time you've heard anything about sin and forgiveness and, and righteousness and holiness. If that's you, here's what you need to understand. that Because of your sin, you're separate, you're lost, you're undone from God... You're far away from God. And if you die in that state, you will spend eternity in that state, forever separated from God. But God says, do what? Throw yourself on my mercy, repent, and I will do what? I will show abundant mercy. I will show loving kindness and I will forgive you. There's another group here today, and that's the Davids, the worshipers of God. You know God, you worship God, but there's sin in your life. And here's what we need to do. We need to stop blaming it on someone else. You need to stop rationalizing your sin. And you just need to repent. It's as simple as that. Realizing that God is the one who's offended by your sin. It doesn't matter what anyone else thinks. It does, but ultimately, who does it matter? God. You're sinning against God. Acknowledge your sin, confess your sin, and ask for forgiveness, and guess what God will do? Because He's faithful, and because you've been unfaithful, He remains faithful, and He does what? Forgiven. Sin is forgiven. <coughs>